Lord, we thank you that you've given us this opportunity that we live in a city and a nation that we have freedoms like this. Thinking about people in places all across this globe that don't experience these type of freedoms. People that live in nations that know that if they get caught following you, they're going to get thrown in jail or worse. Lord, we lift them up to you. We thank you for their courage and their boldness to represent your name. And we ask, Lord, that you would teach us to operate in the same boldness and the same faith. We thank you for this opportunity to hear from you. And uh, I think all of us, including myself, recognize that it's not based on my ability or my gifting. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak in these moments and that you would uh, have your way in each of our hearts as individuals and collectively as a faith community, that you would lead us and guide us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I'm going to do something that's going to be extremely different to start. I would guess that none of you have ever experienced this in church um, before, but before I really jump into the sermon, I, I, I have to do this, and it's, uh, believe me, it's going to hurt me more than it hurts any of you, but I gotta, I'm just going to read this passage real quick. It says, this is scary, but it says, for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest might stand in fear. It says, if anybody persists in sin, you need to rebuke them publicly. And before I jump in, I, I need to rebuke somebody publicly. And, uh, you know, the reason for this is because, not because of the person in particular, but because of the actions and because of the, the destruction that this person has brought, not only this church, but other churches. See, this person, this individual, they're actually in the room tonight. And um, the, the sort of attitude that this person has operated in over the years, not, not only in this church, but in many local churches, has brought a lot of pain and a lot of judgment. You see, this person has gone into churches in this city and has judged almost every aspect of the way that different churches operated. This person will walk into a church, and maybe it was a church that didn't have lights and expressive worship, and they might pass judgment on the fact that, oh, well, they're not really, they don't really know God. They're not, there's no passion here. This is a dead church. This is a dry church. And this person not only felt this way, but they voiced these things publicly, and that's why this public rebuke is necessary. The same person also would come into a church like ours, and they might see the lights and the dancing and the shouting and also pass judgment saying, oh, it's just emotionalism. And like, what is that? Somebody's dancing up and you're just trying to get attention. And this person would pass judgments like this. And really, the attitude that was going on inside of this person almost became like a cancer to the church at large. And this is the reason why this rebuke needs to take place. This person over the years has gone into many churches and has, has looked at many a preacher and judged them on almost every area of their theology because this person had a theological education and they thought that they knew everything about the Bible in every way that somebody should preach and teach. And so they passed judgment on preachers, not only in this church, but in other churches. And so for that reason, because this person has really put themselves out there as sort of this symbol of, you know what, I know everything. This person needs to be rebuked publicly. And this person is right here. Who thought it was you? <laughs> I'm glad nobody left during that because I was like, oh my goodness, this is awkward. <laughs> Here's the truth. This is the title of the message this weekend. I am not the center of the heart. 
In the midst of a sermon series that's been all about what you are, every single message, by the way, has been a positive attribute about what we hope you are. I am needed in the heart. I am needing the heart. I am important in the heart. I'm investing in the heart. This is the only message that is really intrinsically about what you and I am not. That is the center. And you know, the truth is that for me, many of you maybe didn't need to be rebuked the way that I needed to be rebuked because you didn't operate in the same amount of pride as I did, but there's a very negative, nasty quality to me, and the Lord is healing me of it, and he's done great work inside of me, but for many years, and even now, there are times when I act like and, and pretend like, for some reason, I'm the center of everything. Like, I know everything. I, this is the truth. When Jess and I were dating, we would go to other churches, and we would visit, and there was a, there was a point in time where she said, Craig, I'm not going to go to a church with you anymore. I'm just not going to do it. Every single time we go to a church, you tear apart everything that you see, the worship, the greeters. You say they smile too much. You say those guys frown too much. The coffee ministry. You, you act like, you know, you should go up there and the, flip the tables over because surely that's what Jesus would have done because it clearly says in the Bible you can't sell coffee in a church. I mean, I would judge, I would judge every preacher that I ever heard, and it was cancerous because, like, I acted like I was the center of, like, God's reality, and I knew everything. And so, you know, I felt like, why would I, <laughs> thank you, why would I, why would I get up here and preach a message and, and, and preach the whole thing through saying, you're not the center of the heart, when really the title is, I'm not the center of the heart, so I just figure, you know what, I'm going to spend the next few moments just preaching to me, and you can eavesdrop in on it if you want, and if the Holy Spirit needs to talk to you, I'm going to let him do that, but I'm going to preach this to me, is that okay? So here we go. This is the thing. None of us really, I mean, are immune from this. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable in my own skin at this point to recognize that, that I was an extremely prideful person, and I had a lot that the Lord had to tear me down. Like, you know, sometimes you pray, like, Lord, humble me. But then when you get humiliated, you like, well, the devil's attacking me. No, no, no. He said, you said, you said, Lord, humble me, so I'm going to humiliate you to accomplish that. You know, and he had to do that with me. He really... He really tore me down and, and has been building me back up. But, but like, sin is not something that you just, like, overcome in a moment and then you're just immune from it. It's something that we have to continually die to ourselves and recognize I'm not the center of this universe. And I am just as prone to make myself a god in my life as any moment in my, in my history if I'm not constantly putting God on the throne. And I, I just want to, felt like the Lord directed us at the very beginning to show us, you know what, this is not something that's new. In fact, it's the oldest thing in the book. And so uh, we're going to walk through a few passages together, starting in uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses, starting in verse 15. Really, I'm going to preach from Genesis 3, particularly, the, particularly in verse 5. Uh, but of course... I love to preach passages in context, and so we need to set the stage. And so for those of you in the room, like myself, that have ever found yourself putting yourself at the center of your world, putting yourself at the center of your family, putting yourself at the center of your business, putting yourself at the center of your church, thinking that your opinion and your attitude and your belief should be the center, uh, maybe the Lord would speak something to you tonight. So what we're really going to look at 
is this passage that this thing called sin entered the world and how that came to be. It's going to shed light on the situation that you and I find ourselves in. But in order for us to get there, we need to understand the context of what took place. And so I want to, I want to point out specifically, starting in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, because it's so unique, and you'll see what I mean in a second. This is what it says. The Lord took the man. Somebody say the man. He did not say the man and the woman. It says the Lord took the man because, by the way, if you read the scriptures, the woman was not yet created. The woman was not yet created. The Lord took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it. And the Lord God commanded the man. Not the man and the woman. He commanded the man. We'll get back to that. And he said this. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. I'm going to pause it right there. I I have oftentimes wondered this. If I were to walk up to people on the street and I ask them, hey, what's the first commandment that God gave humanity? I feel like people in our context are always going to say, what's not the first commandment? People feel like the first commandment that God gave us was, oh, you're not allowed to eat of that one tree. And that's not the first commandment that God gave. The first commandment that God gave is, you may eat of every tree in the garden. Every tree in the garden. This is the first and primary commandment of our God. And it's important that we recognize that our God is not a negative God first. He's a positive God first. He's not a God that's trying to take something away from us first. He's trying to give us everything first. He's not a God that says, don't do this. He's a God that says, do. I've created it all for you. It's all amazing, and it's all for you. Everything that I, he's an abundant God that has our best in mind. The first commandment that he gave us was everything that I created is for you. All of it. Enjoy. I love you, child. I created it for you. It's for your good. It's for your well-being. If you would live in this place that I've created for you, take enjoyment in me and enjoyment in my creation, we will be well. And his second commandment was this. But... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You will surely die. I believe that God is expressing to us the truth of the situation, not merely trying to threaten us with a punishment. I, don't, I just don't think that's the way that God works. And if you read the entirety of the scripture and the story of God, you see that he doesn't give arbitrary commandments just to see if we'll follow, follow them, just to see if we'll disobey him. Like, he doesn't just say, hey, you're not allowed to wear pink tutus, and if you do, I'm going to slap your wrist. No, every commandment that he gives us is for a purpose, for a reason, because he knows that when we step outside of his will and his way, it's not actually good for us, and it's also not honoring to him. We, ought, we, think, like, we think that God just gives these arbitrary things just to see if we'll obey him, just to see if we'll choose the line of faith, when really the line of faith is actually for our betterment. The line of faith, walking in the faith of God, it actually produces everything we always wanted. We just don't always know it or choose it. So this is what God said to the man. Hey, man. Everything that I created is for you, and it's all good. Enjoy it. But there's this one tree. Don't eat of that one, because I know 
that your soul will die if you do that. And I don't want that for you. And so let's skip ahead to Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is what it says. You've heard this before if you've been in church, but don't tune out. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing both good and and evil. Now, before we get to verse 5, I just want to point out a few things about the, what I call the process of sin. And it's not really, you can preach a whole message on this. We talk about this with our interns, and, and I point this out oftentimes to the, in play, different places that I'm teaching. But um, I want to just address this briefly, and then we'll jump into really the subject of the day. But I just want you to take note of how sin operates in our life, because it operates the same way in our life that it did in the very beginning. And it's, and it's this. The way that the serpent tempted the woman, it says the woman specifically, but we know if you read later on that the woman was with the man. It says Adam was with his wife. And uh, so I want us to remember, first and foremost, that God gave the commandment to man before woman was created. So anybody that's going to critique and say, oh, sin entered the world because the woman ate of the fruit and it was all women's fault. Hey, you're wrong because it was the lack of male leadership that led sin enter the world, not women, because the woman wasn't even created when God gave the commandment, by the way. It was man's fault, not woman's fault, first and foremost. But secondly, this is the way that it works. The serpent didn't come right off the bat and just tell an all-out blatant lie. Did you notice that? He didn't just say, hey, God is a liar. He's not good. You can't trust him. Go ahead and do this thing. It's for your, it's for your betterment. He twisted God's words in just a little bit. This is how sin works in our life. He doesn't just try and get us to just like wake up one morning and just kill somebody or wake up one morning and commit adultery. No, it starts with little things. It starts with the twisting of God's good truth. He said, did God really say to you, you can't eat of any tree? He poses these questions, twisting God's words. Why? Because if he can get us to, to just begin to doubt God in a little bit and get that seed to grow, then eventually we'll begin to act on that doubt and we'll turn from the Lord. But he knows that they're not going to get you to do it just blatantly right away. But if he, can, if he can take you off your trajectory just a little bit right here, he knows you'll be off a mile down there. I'm a golfer, so trajectory is important to me. I know that if I mishit my golf ball, just a millimeter right here, 200 yards down the fairway, it's going to be off by 50 yards. That's the power of trajectory. So he twists God's words just a little bit. And he plants this seed of doubt. And the seed of doubt was this. Can you really trust that God is good and good for you? Did God really say to you, you can't eat of any tree? That doesn't sound like something a good God would say. And so it begins this thought process in her. And she says, no. God said we could eat of the trees. But he did say not to eat of the tree, that tree. And he said, don't touch it either. 
or you'll die. See, what sin does is it gets you to add these things to God. It gets you to add these commandments that God never really uh, added to in the first place. It gets you to add religion to the, the equation. This is what she was doing. No, no, no. God didn't say that, but he said you can't eat of it or no, you can't touch it either or you're going to die. She, she starts adding to what God never said. And then he turns and he turns the corner and he says, the all out lie to her. He says, you won't surely die. And then he, he sneaks this in. God knows that if you choose that, you'll be like him. You'll be like him. And this is how I want to frame this message today. That really the foundational temptation of sin, no matter what it is, is a temptation to distrust that God is good and that God should be God of your life. And to remove him from that place of authority and put yourself there. God knows if you choose this, you'll be like him. Why do you need God to be the center of your world if you could be the center? Why do you need a God to be your authority if you can be your authority? Why do you need a God that's going to try and, you know, push his will and his way on you when you can have your will and your way? Why do you need a God that knows all about good and evil? Why do you need a God that has the, all the wisdom when you can have it for yourself? And this is the temptation, the foundational temptation of man, the foundational temptation of sin is that we would become our own gods is that we would remove God from the center of the equation and put ourselves there. It's why we so often operate this way, whether it's in church or in your place of business or between your spouse or with your kids or with your extended family at Thanksgiving and everybody's driving you crazy and you just... <laughs> we have this thing inside of us that wants to be the center. I know most of us would never say this, but there's something inside of us that to some degree or another desires to be like God, to have the authority over our own life, to have our will and our power extended over ourselves, our situation, and other people. It's why, it's why the, the desire after power is, su is such a driving force in our planet these days. I mean, you see it all the time in people. There's a few things that drive humanity, you know, sexual or just temptation, lusts, uh, covetousness, the desire for money, and the desire for power. And power is an interesting one because even the people in this world that accomplish the greatest degrees of financial wealth, they're not satisfied unless they have power. It's a temptation of the flesh. And so he says, for God knows that if you eat of this, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, tempting to the flesh, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. He ate. He ate. 
The commandment was given to the man. They were together, and they chose to follow through on this together. And, you know, I, I tend to believe that it's really the point of this is not so much that they, you know, whether it was an apple or what kind of piece of fruit it was, it's so much more than that. And it's the same for us. Like, we focus on, on the particulars of sin, you know. Was it, that, was it just this tree and this one particular piece of fruit? And they, they ate this piece of fruit, and we treat it like it's some arbitrary thing. Like, don't eat that fruit because that fruit is what's going to kill you, when really that's not what he was saying at all. The heart behind it all is don't eat of that because, because of the commandment I gave you was I have all of this for you. It's an invitation to trust me. It's an invitation to keep me as God of this universe. It's an invitation to keep me on the throne, not only of the universe, but of your life. I'm asking you to trust me that everything that I've provided for you, everything that I've given for you, the relationship that I have with you is good enough for you. It's for your best. Don't choose that path because when you choose it, you will die because I know when you choose it, what you're choosing is not just to eat one thing. You're choosing to make yourself God of your world. You're choosing to put yourself in the center. And for that, you die inside. It's the root of sin, this choice, this pride choice that says, God, I don't trust you. I want to trust myself. It's the root of sin, and it's the root of separation. And it's the same root for us. You know, oftentimes we focus on, uh, you know, particular sins. We like to do that in church specific things that we look to and we call that a sin and and there's bigger ones and littler ones you know we call them lies and white lies and and we condemn certain things and we don't condemn other things and we we because we're the center of biblical theology we judge which sins are bigger and smaller than others and which ones we should condemn and which ones we shouldn't and the reality is that any outward expression of sin is just a symptom of a sickness that's deep inside you know, when you have a cold and you have a runny nose and a cough and an itch and all that, that is not the sickness. Those are not, the, the runny nose is not the sickness, right? You follow? The, the, the cough and the scratchy throat, that's not the sickness. Those are symptoms of the sickness. And any outward expression of sin that you and I will operate in are symptoms of an issue that's going on deep inside. It's a pride issue. It's a sin issue. That's really what sin is is a condition in the heart of man that says, God, I'm good. I'm going to be my own God. And so I don't know your heart. I don't know your world. I don't know, you know, what ways that you operate in really inside. Some of us, some of us are better at like um, not expressing the really nasty things that we think. You know what I'm saying? Like... Some of us just kind of like word vomit. We just say what we think, and it's, it hurts everybody. And Some of us have those same things going on inside, but we're just really good at stopping them up. When really what God wants to do is heal us from the inside out. That we wouldn't just get really good at like stopping ourselves from acting on the negative thoughts that are going on inside, but that we would be purified. That we'd be healed. I think it's so beautiful. I want to read this passage um, Ephesians 4, it says, Throw off the old sinful nature that was your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes and put on the new nature. Listen to this. Created to be like God 
truly righteous and holy. I think it's so amazing that God is in the, the business of restoring broken things. You see, the if you've been following me, the first sin of man and really the sin that you and I face is this temptation to be like God. That's what he said. The serpent said, God knows that if you eat of that fruit, you will be like him. Did you catch it? You will be like him. But, but if you read the New Testament, you know that, that almost everything that is pointing to is this, this restorative nature that God just wants us to be like him, that God just wants us to be like Jesus. We say these prayers, Lord, make me like you. Jesus, I just want to be like you. What would Jesus do? I want to be like you, God. And it's amazing to me and beautiful to me that the sin, the, the sin, if it's viewed in the wrong way, this idea, this heart that says, I want to be like God, is the very same thing in contrast that he wants from us to be like him. But those two things happen in very different ways. One is when you want to be like God. You want to be your own God. You want to remove him from the throne of your life. Life, and you want to be the God of your life. And the other, when you do it in holiness, with a, with a restored uh, life, with a restored nature, based on what Jesus offers, is you can now desire to be like God in the purest of ways. You can say, I'm dying to myself. God, I want to be like you, not because you're not on the throne of my life, because you are in the throne of my life, and now I can follow you. I can become like you, and it's not so I can have the glory, it's so you can have the glory. We should desire to be like God, but not because we desire to want to be God. Because we finally see you are God, and you have the throne in my life, and now I just want to die to myself daily that I might look like you. So that when I look like you, I would bring glory to you. You know, one of the, one of the passages that was really prophesied over this church at the very beginning of this year you're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. I love that passage. And it goes on to say, it's such a beautiful thing. It goes on to say, let your light shine before men. Hey, shine. Let everybody see you. Let everybody see you. Let your light shine for all to see. But there's a reason. You see, the biblical reason for letting your light shine, for being famous, for, for letting the world see you is much different than the worldly version. So the world says, let your light shine, let your gifts shine so all will see you and glorify you. We see this all over Hollywood. We see this all over Instagram. You know, we live in a selfie sphere where everybody's trying to get attention for themselves. Isn't it true? We all want to shine so people will see us. But Jesus told us the reason why we should shine. He said, let your light shine so that all men will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. See, this is the test to know whether you're living for yourself or not. This is the test, whether when people see you, they glorify God or they glorify you. When your light is so shining in a healthy way, all of the good works that we do will bring glory to God because people will know, hey, it's not me. You know, Peter said, why are you looking at me as if I am anybody? I'm just a man. I'm preaching in the name of Jesus. You need to glorify him. This is why we should let our light shine. And so I just want to encourage you, if in any area of your life you've realized and recognized that you've become the center, that you've made yourself the center, maybe you've been the center of your world forever, or maybe, you know, there was a time that you said, God, I want to surrender to you, but you've, you, if you're really honest with yourself, you, you recognize that you, you put yourself back on the throne of your life. 
First, I just want to say, recognize that you've made yourself the center of your family or your job or your church or whatever it is, and then actively take yourself off of that throne and put God there. It's a choice to die to yourself. It's a choice to say, you know what, I do have an opinion, and I think that it's a pretty good one, but I'm going to surrender it. I wonder if you would just reflect on your world, if there's any area or aspect that if you're really being honest, you say, yeah, I've made myself the center. Yeah. I'm trying to be God. I want to point out just a few things because maybe I'm not talking to anybody else, but I'm talking to myself tonight. I am not the center of this church. I am not the center of the heart. If you're at the center, here's a few ways that you can know whether you're at the center or whether God's at the center. Number one, if you're at the center, you critique but if God's at the center, you construct. If you're at the center, you critique. But if God's at the center, you construct. You see, we call it constructive criticism sometimes. But really, if we're honest, it's not very constructive, is it? And, and you know what? Man, I roll with the best of them. I'm so good at critiquing. I could pick apart. I mean, just ask my wife, man. I could pick apart anything. And sometimes I'm right. And probably most of the time I'm wrong. All the churches that I went into years ago and said this and that about the worship and the preaching and all that, you know what? I might have been right about some of it. And I might have been wrong about a lot of it, a lot of it. But you know what? The way that I was operating was the issue, not the fact that I had maybe a critique here or there. It's because none of my critiques were constructive at all. And so here in this church, we just want to invite you. If you're going to only operate in criticism but not construction, that you would take yourself off the center, put God in the center, and unity of the family above your own opinion. Because look, we can call it whatever we want to call it, but if all you're doing is sitting on the sideline, critiquing, 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 but not ever building something up, then you are not doing anything constructive. You know, if I'm going to tear down a house and I'm a construction worker, I know what it's going to take to tear down that house. I know that it's going to be hard to tear it down and I know the work that I'm going to have to do to rebuild it. I'm not just going to stand on the sidelines and say, hey, bring in the wrecking ball and then I'm going to walk away and go find the next house down the street to tear down. That's criticism. That's destructive. Criticism hurts people. It hurts the people around you. And really what it does is it kills your own soul. And you know what? If you're finding yourself in a place of criticism, it might mean that you have made yourself the center of your world. Now listen, it's okay to critique. It's okay that not everything is perfect in this church, and it's not. But there's a a great difference between somebody that's going to shout from the sidelines and somebody that's going to be in the game helping build something, help construct something back together that's broken. You might be at the center if you critique, and God's probably at the center if you're in the game constructing. If you're at the center, you consume, and if God's at the center, you produce. If you're at the center, you consume, And if God's at the center, you produce. You know, they say, whoever they is, they say, 
We use that term often, don't we? Hey, they say. Hey, I heard some, I heard that, you know, just because you heard the, anyway. Uh, <clears throat> they say that 80% of the people do 20% of the work, and 20% of the people do 80% of the work. It's just what they say. I don't know if it's true or not. But what I do know is that we live in a culture that is very consumeristic, isn't it? Can you agree with that? I mean, it's all about what can we get next? What can we get next? I mean, if you have like the iPhone 5 right now, you feel really lame, you know? Like, and that's kind of craziness. Like, we're just always looking for what's next. We're consumers, consumers, consumers. Give me more, 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 more. Like, we're always comparing to what other people have in the material world. We're always comparing to what other people have in, the, in, the, like, in their giftings and their buildings and their positions and their stature and their money. And we're always wanting more and more and more. And not only that, but we live in a fast-paced society. We li- I call it a fast-food generation. We live, in this, we live in this society that wants it now. We want it now. We want microwave popcorn. We want my hamburger ready right now. And so we consume and we consume and we consume and we do it quickly. And if we're not careful, we let that bleed over into our experience in the church family, don't we? We come into church and we want, like, where's my coffee? Like, what? The coffee's not made yet? Oh, it's lukewarm? What? And then, you know, why is this coffee area all messed up and, like, dirty? And, and then we come into the service and we want to we consume worship just the way we like it, just the right temperature of, you know, are the lights high enough or low enough? Is the volume high enough or low enough? I don't know if I like... Come on, Seth, can you play my favorite song? I mean, I haven't heard Oceans in a while. Come on. Like, and we just want to consume, you know. And then, we, and then we judge these preachers and, like, are they going to give me the word that's going to speak to me? And then we say things like this. He's just not really feeding me there. So I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm just not really getting fed. Yeah, it's because all you're doing is consuming. You just want, you just want, you just want. And you know what? That's not all bad. Truth is, we need to be fed. Truth is, we need, we need to receive. But we can become spiritual gluttons when all it's about is just us eating and eating and eating and eating. And And no wonder we feel like we're dead inside spiritually. Because we're spiritually obese. Because really the way God designed it is that we would consume and produce, consume and produce. You know, if I were to go to the gym and I, 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 I were to like pound a whole bunch of creatine and then never work out, I would be very, very unhealthy. Am I right? Am I right? No, I'm not pointing to you, man. No, I'm pointing to the dude with muscles right here. (laughs) Yeah, you got muscles too. Hey, what would happen if all you ate was protein, protein, creatine, creatine, and then you just sat at the gym and, hey, you're not really working out right. Your form isn't good. Nah, I don't like like it. Here, I'm out. You would blow up and you would die. It's the same spiritually. It's why, you know the reason we want you to serve in the church is not because we have a need for you to do something for us. It's because we know it's actually better for you if you would pour out. That's the way God designed us. We have to serve. We have to do something or we die inside. Look, it's not for us because we have all these needs and we're always just trying to twist your arm to get you to do stuff. We don't need you to do stuff. It's because it's better for you. If as you eat, as you receive from God, you also produce in the kingdom, that's the way that God created us to be healthy. If you're at the center, you're probably elevating yourself. But if God is at the center, 
you're elevating others. Think about your world. Do you elevate yourself? Do you elevate your own opinion? Do you elevate your own desires? Or are you elevating other people? The very first verse that we have our interns as they join our internship memorize is this. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. In fact, I would love it if everybody in this church just memorized this passage. This is my, this is my life call. And I'm not always the best at this, but this is the way that I strive to live my life and my ministry in particular. This is what it says. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. I mean, if that's not a good life mission, I don't know what is. He's saying, listen, don't be confused. When I stand up on a platform like this or I'm out in the street or wherever I am, Paul says, I'm not preaching about me. Even if I do great miracles and you've seen healings come through me and you've seen miracles and you've seen people be delivered through me, it's not because of me and it's not for me. I'm not preaching about me. I'm preaching about one person and his name is Jesus. And I'm also preaching a second thing, that I am your servant for his sake. I mean, this whole thing is not about me. It's about him first and foremost, and then you secondly, and then I'm, I'm down the line somewhere else. But he knew that when you make God number one and God's people number two, you will find the life that you always wanted and the fulfillment that you've been so chasing after all along. Because us being the center, us being the God of our world is the most unhealthy thing, the un most unhealthy place that we could find ourselves in. I am not the center of the heart. I am not the center of this church. I am not the center of my family. I am not the center of my friend group. I'm not the center of my business. You know, they used to think that uh, for years they thought that the, all of the universe revolved around the earth. You remember that? And then this guy named Copernicus figured out that really everything doesn't revolve around us. What's interesting is that there's this thing called the Copernicus principle that people really took this and ran with this and they, they said, once we realize that the whole of the cosmos and the universe doesn't revolve around this little ball that we live on, they said, this is what they said. They said, that must mean that there's nothing particularly special about us. And the inference is that there really is no God out there and there's no God that's you know, great and has desires for us in particular because we're really nothing special amongst this great universe. They said, not only does the universe not revolve around us, but we're just a small planet in this really tiny solar system and we revolve around our sun. And then our solar system is just a tiny little minuscule, like nothing solar system in the midst of a much larger galaxy, in the midst of billions and billions of galaxies. 
And so they said, you know, well, we're just so tiny and insignificant. There, should, there could be really nothing special about us at all. And this is what the, the scientific community and the atheists in particular would say is that because there's nothing significant about our placement in the cosmos, it means that there's nothing significant about us. But if you do the research, you would find that the fact that there's life on this little globe that we live on is actually extraordinarily rare. And it's, it takes so many amazing things that have to at the same time line up for there to even be the possibility of life on this planet, it's almost unfathomable. The same set of facts that the atheists look at and they say, you know what, this all came from nothing and there is no God, is the same set of facts that I look at and say, how could you look at these set of facts and not, not be your only conclusion that there's such an amazing God that made all this possible? It's, it's just unbelievable. If we were just a few degrees closer to the sun, we would fry. If we were just a few degrees further away from the sun, we would freeze. I mean, there's like 17 major and probably thousands of minor things that you have to have take place at the same time in order for there to be inhabitable life on a planet like ours. It's incredible. I've got a whole message on it I could preach. We don't have time. But thank you. I just would say this. The fact that everything doesn't revolve around our planet is not evidence that we're not important. The fact that we revolve around the sun, to me, if I could borrow that, would be the call for us. That if we would revolve our life around the sun and recognize that just because the universe of my reality doesn't revolve around me doesn't mean that I'm not important, doesn't mean that I don't have significance, doesn't mean that I'm not somebody. It means that I can take value in the fact that I'm somebody that revolves around somebody else. And he's more important than I am. And I know that when I lay my life down and sacrifice for him, allowing him to be on the throne I will find the fulfillment in life that I always wanted.